Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 7 The War of the Gods and the Demons Part 3 In the whole world, one thing still threatened Carthage, and that was Carthage. There still remained the inner working of an element strong in all successful commercial states, and the presence of a spirit that we know. There was still the solid sense and shrewdness of the men who manage big enterprises. There was still the advice of the best financial experts. There was still business government. There was still the broad and sane outlook of practical men of affairs. And in these things could the Romans hope. As the war trailed on to what seemed its tragic end, there grew gradually a faint and strange possibility that even now they might not hope in vain. The plain businessmen of Carthage, thinking as such men do in terms of living and dying races, saw clearly that Rome was not only dying, but dead. The war was over. It was obviously hopeless for the Italian city to resist any longer and inconceivable that anybody should resist when it was hopeless. Under these circumstances, another set of broad, sound business principles remained to be considered. Wars were waged with money, and consequently cost money. Perhaps they felt in their hearts, as do so many of their kind, that after all, war must be a little wicked because it costs money. The time had now come for peace, and still more for economy. The messages sent by Hannibal from time to time asking for reinforcements were a ridiculous anachronism. There were much more important things to attend to now. It might be true that some consul or other had made a last dash to the Metaurus, had killed Hannibal's brother and flung his head with Latin fury into Hannibal's camp and mad actions of that sort showed how utterly hopeless the Latins felt about their cause. But even excitable Latins could not be so mad as to cling to a lost cause forever. So argued the best financial experts, and tossed aside more and more letters, full of rather queer, alarmist reports. So argued and acted the great Carthaginian empire. That meaningless prejudice, the curse of commercial states, that stupidity is in some way practical, and that genius is in some way futile, led them to starve and abandon that great artist in the school of arms whom the gods had given them in vain. Why do men entertain this queer idea that what is sordid must always overthrow what is magnanimous? that there is some dim connection between brains and brutality, or that it does not matter if a man is dull so long as he is also mean. Why do they vaguely think of all chivalry as sentiment, and all sentiment as weakness? They do it because they are, like all men, 
primarily inspired by religion. For them, as for all men, the first fact is their notion of the nature of things, their idea about what world they are living in. And it is their faith that the only ultimate thing is fear, and therefore that the very heart of the world is evil. They believe that death is stronger than life, and therefore dead things must be stronger than living things. Whether those dead things are gold and iron and machinery or rocks and rivers and forces of nature. It may sound fanciful to say that men we meet at tea tables or talk to at garden parties are secretly worshippers of Baal or Moloch, but this sort of commercial mind has its own cosmic vision, and it is the vision of Carthage. It has in it the brutal blunder that was the ruin of Carthage. The Punic power fell because there is in this materialism a mad indifference to real thought. By disbelieving in the soul, it comes to disbelieving in the mind. Being too practical to be moral, it denies what every practical soldier calls the moral of an army. It fancies that money will fight when men will no longer fight. So it was with the Punic merchant princes. Their religion was a religion of despair, even when their practical fortunes were hopeful. How could they understand that the Romans could hope even when their fortunes were hopeless? Their religion was a religion of force and fear. How could they understand that men can still despise fear even when they submit to force? Their philosophy of the world had weariness in its very heart. Above all, they were weary of warfare. How should they understand those who still wage war? even when they are weary of it. In a word, how should they understand the mind of man, who had so long bowed down before mindless things, money and brute force and gods, who had the hearts of beasts? They awoke suddenly to the news that the embers, they had disdained too much even to tread out, were again breaking everywhere into flames. That Hasdrubal was defeated that Hannibal was outnumbered, that Scipio had carried the war into Spain, that he had carried it into Africa. Before the very gates of the Golden City, Hannibal fought his last fight for it and lost, and Carthage fell as nothing has fallen since Satan. The name of the new city remains only as a name. There is no stone of it left upon the sand. Another war was indeed waged before the final destruction, but the destruction was final. Only men digging in its deep foundation, centuries after, found a heap of hundreds of little skeletons, the holy relics of that religion. For Carthage fell because she was faithful to her own philosophy and had followed out to its logical conclusion her own vision of the universe. Moloch had eaten his children. The gods had risen again, and the demons had been defeated after all. But they had been defeated by the defeated, and almost defeated by the dead. Nobody understands the romance of Rome and why she rose afterwards to a representative leadership that seemed almost fated and fundamentally natural. 
Who does not keep in mind the agony of horror and humiliation through which she had continued to testify to the sanity that is the soul of Europe? She came to stand alone in the midst of an empire because she had once stood alone in the midst of a ruin and a waste. After that, all men knew in their hearts that she had been representative of mankind, even when she was rejected of men. And there fell on her the shadow from a shining and as yet invisible light, and the burden of things to be. It is not for us to guess in what manner or moment the mercy of God might, in any case, have rescued the world. But it is certain that the struggle which established Christendom would have been very different if there had been an empire of Carthage instead of an empire of Rome. We have to thank the patience of the Punic Wars if, in after ages, divine things descended at least upon human things, and not inhuman. Europe evolved into its own vices and its own impotence, as will be suggested on another page. But the worst into which it evolved was not like what it had escaped. Can any man in his senses compare the great wooden doll whom the children expected to eat a little bit of the dinner with the great idol who would have been expected to eat the children? That is the measure of how far the world went astray, compared with how far it might have gone astray. If the Romans were ruthless, it was in a true sense to an enemy, and certainly not merely a rival. They remembered not trade routes and regulations, but the faces of sneering men, and hated the hateful soul of Carthage. And we owe them something if we never needed to cut down the groves of Venus, exactly as men cut down the groves of Baal. We owe it partly to their harshness that our thoughts of our human past are not wholly harsh. If the passage from heathenry to Christianity was a bridge as well as a breach, we owe it to those who kept that heathenry human. If, after all these ages, we are in some sense at peace with paganism, and can think more kindly of our fathers, it is well to remember the things that were, and the things that might have been. For this reason alone we can take lightly the load of antiquity, and need not shudder at a nymph on a fountain, or a cupid on a valentine. Laughter and sadness link us with things long passed away, and remembered without dishonor. And we can see, not altogether without tenderness, the twilight sinking around the Sabine farm, and hear the household gods rejoice when Catullus comes home to Sermio. Deleta est Carthago. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>